an interview with Garrett Oliver. This took place between the two Saturday sessions. I stepped outside to give Greg a phone call, and after I was done talking with Greg, I was sitting in the balcony taking a break, was Garrett. So I went over and asked him if he'd mind doing an interview, and he was very gracious and agreed to it. And so we uh, sat down and, and talked a little bit about Brooklyn Brewery. I'm here with Garrett Oliver, brewmaster from Brooklyn Brewery. How are you doing tonight, Garrett? I'm doing great. You know, the festival's, uh, the festival's terrific. Every session is sold out. Uh, you know, the people are great. You know, I've, I think I've had my picture taken with about 200 people in the last couple of days. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, so I'll be here for the evening session. I know a lot of brewers run off for the evening session on Saturday, but um, I'm going to stand my ground at least for a while. Well, that's good because I'm sure there are some, you know, people who are really into beer coming to this session. And I felt bad when I heard that, like, you know, all the brewers are going to be off partying while, you know, they come here and drink. Well, and while all the good beers are gone in a lot of cases. How's the stash of Brooklyn Local 1? You going to have enough to last the session? We sent quite a bit. We want to make sure that people did have an opportunity to taste it. And, uh, you know, I think that everybody who comes on Saturday night, they shouldn't be somehow uh, discriminated against uh, somehow, you know, like you shouldn't come on Saturday or something. Uh, so, you know, I, I think the brewers have an obligation, really, to, you know, st- uh, stand at their booths at least for a while, give people an opportunity to meet them, and make sure there's enough beer for them to taste everything that came out. Absolutely. On Thursday night, I uh, recorded your beer and cheese tasting, which was very interesting. And um, there was a huge crowd there, like much more than the servers are willing are prepared to hand out cheeses. How did you think that went over? It, it was pretty much sitting room only, I mean, uh, standing room only, and it was... Uh, I think it was a bit tough that I think that their plan for getting the cheese out into the crowd uh, wasn't really up to the task. But I think that, uh, you know, once I decided that we should just put it on plates and let people actually pass it down, the cheese went right out and uh, everything smoothed out pretty quickly. So, you know, all's well that ends well. I think everybody had a very good time. Um, I, didn't, uh, I didn't meet anybody who said uh, that, uh, oh, my God, what a disaster. So I think it was all good. Except for the people who don't like Stilton, right? <laughs> They're bad people. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a question for you about, um, you've done beer versus wine with uh, top sommeliers, things like that. Yeah. Um, over the past couple of days, I have saw the Sam Marniold, I saw her their uh, beer versus wine, and they do it a little bit differently. They do it where they both like seem to understand the other person's side, and they do it more tongue-in-cheek. And it seems like you're more out for the throat. You want to win. And I'm just curious how what your opinion is on your aspect versus their aspect because I asked Marnie about this and um, what she said was you do it without I want to make sure I get this accurate but you don't consider the potential PR consequences like you might turn off some wine people with your the way you attack and I'm just curious how you felt about that well I mean I always say at the beginning of all of these things uh, uh, how much I love wine you know I sit on the wine panels of the New York Times have a pretty good wine collection at home uh, I spend two weeks every year in Italy drinking wine I've got a, and, a, and uh, so and a lot of my friends are in the wine business. So at the beginning of each of these, and I know I, I don't think she's ever seen me do it actually, okay. um, but uh, I always point out that I'm a huge fan of wine. I just think that beer is better with uh, with cheese in particular, and with food uh, uh, in general when it comes to versatility. Um, and I think that the fact that I've never lost any of these competitions kind of proves that out. Now, on a day-to-day basis, you know, I may drink, out of seven days of the week, I may drink uh, uh, wine, three or four of them. So, you know, I'm certainly not in any way against wine, but I think wine does get a free ride from the media, uh, whereas we, you know, get completely stiffed. Um, 
I mean, I can't tell you how many magazines, et cetera, you go to and you say, hey, how about doing an, uh, an article uh, on beer? And they say, oh, we did something on beer last year. And this will be a, uh, uh, you know, a magazine or a newspaper that has a weekly wine article. And even though craft beer actually sells more in dollars uh, and, of course, in liquid uh, every year than, uh, than good wine does, uh, still uh, we can't get any love. So I think that it does require a, uh, a situation where you go in and you really show people, like, look, this is something different than what you thought it was, and, uh, you know, it's time to pay a little bit more attention to it. And, you know, the style of the, uh, of, of the event is very much tongue-in-cheek, fun, like Iron Chef, uh, you know, talking a little bit of smack. And it's, I mean, I've had a lot of people leave it saying that it was like a great comedy routine, and that's the way I think about it, so. Okay, to be honest, I haven't seen your, your beer versus wine. It just, my impression was, it seems like you're a lot more win at all costs where the Sam and Marty show are kind of, you yeah. know. Well, the other person is also, and I like to do it with people who have, you know, who are going to stand up in front of the crowd and really, you know, big up their wine and, uh, and, and talk about how it's going to totally wipe out my beer and whatever else because, you know, that's the fun. It's, it's a show. Yeah, that brings on the theatrics, for sure. Uh, why don't we talk a little bit about Brooklyn Local 1 now? Uh, we haven't really talked about it on the show. I talked about it a little bit when I came back from the, the Brooklyn tour, but uh, I don't think we really went into the details about everything you needed to do to get that thing produced. And we can get a little bit into uh, some of the things you had to add to the brewery in order to brew Brooklyn Uncle One. Well, I mean, it's, uh, it's been a pretty big learning curve for, uh, you know, for us at the brewery. Uh, we'd never done anything even vaguely like this. And there's really nothing to be read on the subject uh, out there. I mean, 100% bottle conditioning is something which is not done by any breweries of our size um, and uh, not even by most of the big Belgian brewers including the Trappist brewers so you know everyone switched to a modern method where you put most of the gas in there when it goes into the bottle and then a little bit of sugar and a little bit of yeast and you say it's bottle condition but it's only maybe 10 or 15 percent bottle condition uh, I felt that you know that my favorite Belgian beers were done the old way and that we would get more complexity from it and I, I decided to buy uh, a bottling line, which was not a counter-pressure line, which means that we don't even have the ability to put carbonated beer into the bottle, which means that I can't cheat. You know, even if I... Uh, <laughs> so I, once I decided to do that, it was basically, you know, you're going without a parachute kind of thing, or without a net, rather. Uh, and uh, so, you know, it better work. And uh, so it was a lot of development work, et cetera, but, the, you know, the basic process is that, uh, you know, we do a normal process up until, you know, we use a large uh, amount of first-pressing raw sugar in the kettle. Um, the beer's made pretty normally. Uh, three weeks or so residence time in the, in the, uh, in the, in the unit tanks. Uh, the original yeast strain is filtered out. Uh, the new yeast is added along with uh, a priming sugar, which is dextrose, corn sugar. Um, and that's the, for the re-fermentation. And so the beer goes into the, once that's all blended in, it goes into the bottle flat. Uh, it goes to our warm rooms and uh, undergoes uh, two weeks of warm conditioning uh, at about uh, you know almost 80 degrees, and then uh, a further two weeks of cold conditioning, which allows you know the the yeast to become dormant and settle down to the bottom of the uh, of the vessel. Uh, and then at that point, the bottles come back out. The bottles are actually washed and then labeled uh, after the whole process. So altogether, it's almost a two-month process uh, from start to finish. Uh, you know, to, to create local one. So it's, um, it's uh, obviously pretty involved, but, uh, 
you know, we're really happy with the beer. Um, you know, it's really, you know, exactly the way that, uh, you know, we'd like it to be. People seem to be enjoying it. And, uh, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a great ride with it. So in your opinion, and it's still a relatively young beer, but have you gotten a gauge on when it's best to be enjoyed? Is it a fresh beer? Should you age it for a little bit, age it for a long time? What's your opinion on that? Um, my, my suspicion is that it's got a good, uh, you know, a good, say, three or four years uh, in it. Um, could be longer. Certainly, uh, the test bottlings that we did uh, over a year ago are still tasting really nice, and they, they've been stored at, uh, you know, in warm conditions. Um, so there's no sign of uh, oxidation or, or any problems. It becomes softer, uh, a bit creamier. There's a, the, the hop attack is not quite as brisk, um, but you have this very soft, round character that has its own charms. So, you know, I do think that it's a beer that will age well, and it's really up to people's personal taste, whether they will like it older or they like it younger. Um, I like it both ways so far. Okay, great. And then the other beer that you've been working on recently that's a, a limited release that's getting some attention is the um, Schneider Brookliner Hopfenweiss. Is that right? Did yes. I get the name right? Yes, uh, Brookliner Schneider Hopfenweiss. Um, the original version, which I brewed in May uh, at uh, the Schneider Weiss Beer Brewery in Germany, it's called Schneider Brooklyner Hopfenweiss. And the idea that uh, myself and Hans-Peter Drexler came up with, which was to do uh, pale Weissbach, 8%, heavily dry hopped. But I would express the terroir of his area, and he would express the terroir of my area. So I chose the Safir hop variety, which is a hollow tower variety, which grows in the fields around Kilheim, uh, where the brewery is. And we brewed that on uh, May 9th, uh, and uh, that was released in bottles and kegs. Again, 100% bottle and keg conditioning. Uh, and then in, uh, uh, in Brooklyn, he came over a couple of months later. He brought his yeast, and uh, we sat down with him with 15 different American hop varieties. He chose Palisade and Amarillo. So those are the late hops and dry hops for the uh, Brooklyner Schneider Hopfenweiss. And that's the one that we have at the festival here today. And uh, we've done some, uh, some bottling trials with it as well for, for re-fermentation. It turns out very nicely. So who knows, we may release it as a special next year in bottles as well. But for right now, it's part of our Brewmasters Reserve program. And we've done things like this in the past with, uh, with uh, La Chouffe in Belgium, uh, uh, J.W. Lee's uh, uh, up in, uh, in Manchester, England. And it's, uh, it's always fun to get an opportunity to work with other breweries and, and do uh, these uh, collaborative brews. All right. Thank you, Garrett. Is there anything else you'd like to say that the brewery is going to be doing soon? Well, there's a, you know, there's a new beer every two months you know, under the Brewmasters Reserve program, and uh, you know, we have a pretty active cask program. We've got a lot of different things going on. You know, we're looking to move because we're kind of out of room for uh, producing beer, so uh, Brooklyn these days is pretty expensive, uh, and we, we, we do plan to stay in Brooklyn, but so we're looking around for a new space right now. So if anybody knows, uh, you know, 50,000 square feet, you know, really, you know, in a decent area uh, that uh, can accommodate a brewery, please do let us know. <laughs> one last question I thought of after we finished talking about the Brooklyn Local One. Do you know what the distribution um, areas are for that? Like, where can our listeners find it? Like, what states? Well, I know that it's certainly in the Northeast. Um, and uh, we're, we're, we've, we've just started to get it out as far as Chicago. Uh, we're slowly kind of moving it down into uh, the southern areas of our territory. Um, some of it goes to Europe. We actually sell about 10% of our overall production in Europe, um, which is you know, pretty, uh, quite something for a relatively small brewery. Um, so you know, I would say that uh, the states that we're in 
uh, most of them can expect within the next six months or so to uh, see Local One hopefully coming into their market. And uh, when it shows up, I hope they like it. Thank you for listening to this portion of the Craft Beer Radio Great American Beer Festival coverage. To find more coverage or to subscribe to our podcast, go to craftbeerradio.com. Craft Beer Radio is released under the Creative Commons license. 